Lord, you're big and you love us. And that does make us glad, even in times of profound sorrow like this. Because we know that you hold the past, the present, and the future, and we know that our brother Dan is home with you and that we will see him one day again. And so we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We do ask, Lord, though, that you would come alongside that dear family as a husband, a father, was taken from them too soon. We pray for your comfort. And as I open up the word this morning, we pray also that we would have ears to hear. We pray that the words that I speak and that the thoughts that we all have would be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to start today by providing a little window into <clears throat> what, it's, what it's like to be in my head for a day. So by nature, I'm a perfectionist, uh, and that presents one significant problem for me, namely this massive gap, this gaping canyon between myself and my goal of perfection. So the average day for me consists of an almost constant string of failures. The best way I can describe these experiences is with the analogy of a spelling bee. So anybody, anybody ever have, be, compete in a spelling bee in middle school? You remember those days uh, you get up in front of everybody? I was a big spelling bee kid. It was a perfect fit for my perfectionism. But I worked really hard at it, uh, driven by the idea that I never want to hear this one sound. Uh, maybe it'll play here. The ding of the bell. Right? That's, that's the bell the judge chimes when you get a word wrong. Slip up, miss even one letter, and the ding is what you hear. Right? Uh, don't misspeak, or here comes that ding. Right? So I worked the dictionary day after day to the point where I came this close to never having to hear that bell. The problem was there was another bell, an internal one in my head, dinging me every time I fell short of perfection in any area of my life. And no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't conquer that internal bell. It was there with me. I'm hearing it all the time. Wake up in the morning, and it's ding. You really could have woken up earlier. It's pretty lazy of you. Right? Reach for the frosted flakes, and this is what I hear. Ding. If you were disciplined like your dad, you'd be eating something healthier right now. Get on the bus for school. If you had better social skills, people would be excited to sit with you. Right? Show up at school. If you were a better athlete, girls would be more attracted to you. End of first period. Ding, you forgot to do your devotions this morning. Lunchtime. Ding, if you were serious about your faith, you wouldn't be afraid to take out your Bible and do your devotional right now in front of everybody. That's the way my average day has gone from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed. And statistically speaking, a certain small percentage of you have had that same experience. So you know what a perfectionist does in response to that bell. Right? You do one of two things. I, I do one of two things when that bell rings in my head. Right? One, denial. No, 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 that's not right. That's not right. I can explain. That one shouldn't count as a failure. That's not really what it seemed like it was. There's a reason for it. Don't count that one. I'll fix it. Denial, right? The second response is self-hatred. 
Right? So like some of you probably have at some point, I had a rubber band around my wrist uh, for a while. Junior high and high school, uh, somebody taught me to give it a snap when that bell went off. Uh, terrible advice, but in hindsight, I was pulled toward that rubber band because it offered a way, I thought, to remove that bell's power over me, right? Here's what I mean. Bell, you can't inflict on me pain for that failure because I beat you to it and inflicted pain on myself, right? In other words, if I tell myself I'm worthless before the bell does, then the bell can't hurt me anymore. 4,000 years ago, there was a guy named Abram who knew the ding of that bell. In fact, last we saw Abram in Genesis 12, he blew it in a big way. So what now? What now that he's heard the ding of the bell of failure? Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 13? Genesis chapter 13. Last week, we took a one-week break. Don't need that anymore. Uh, uh, last week, we took a one-week break from our series to observe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. But today, we pick up where we left off in the life of Abraham, who's still known at this point in the story as Abram. If you remember Pastor Sean's sermon from two weeks ago, it was a disaster. <clears throat> Not Pastor Sean's sermon. That was great. But the events of Genesis 12 were a disaster. After receiving this amazing personal call from the God of the universe at the beginning of chapter 12, Abram treasures possessions over God as he flees to Egypt. And he fears people over God as he gives up his wife. That was chapter 12. Remember that famine struck? That's what happened. Instead of trusting God or even consulting with God in the land of the promise, Abram tucks tail and heads to Egypt, treasuring his possessions over God. Ding. And then in Egypt, he tells his wife, you know what, you're beautiful. These Egyptians are going to want you. Would you just say you're my sister and join the king's harem so they don't kill me to get to you? Ding. Right? Fears people over God. Yet, despite his treasuring possessions over God and fearing people over God, we saw that that chapter, chapter 12, ended with God graciously saving him and his wife Sarai. So what now? What now that Abram has heard the ding of the bell of failure and yet has been mercifully saved? That's where we pick up the story. So would you follow along as I read the first four verses of chapter 13? So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. We're going to look at all of chapters 13 and 14 today. Uh, here's the big idea. I framed it at the outset in terms of Abram. But at the end, we'll turn back around and apply it to us. The big idea is that Abram responds to failure by turning from his sin to rest in God's grace. Abram responds to failure by turning from his sin to rest in God's grace. Now, you shouldn't be convinced of that quite yet, just from the first four, four verses that we read. But I hope that by the end of our time together today, you will be. What we can already see in these first four verses is the turning from sin. Did you catch what he did? Verse 3. 
he went back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. That's verse 4. That's referring to when he, made, uh, when he met with God at the beginning of chapter 12. In other words, he goes back to the last place where he had been walking with God faithfully. And now, after, now that God has saved him from colossal failure, what does he do? He goes back to the place where he had left the narrow path. As if to press reset and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse 4. That's called repentance. We talk about it often here at North Sub. It's one of our marks of a disciple that a disciple repents regularly, we say. And all repentance means is turning from sin and turning to God. It's like I was walking this way and now I stop and it's not just I say sorry and keep walking. I stop and I turn and walk a different way. We aren't a perfect people here at North Suburban Church, as you all know, if you've spent any time with us, we're far from it. But we aspire to be a people who are constantly acknowledging our sin and repenting from it, going back to where our tents had been at the beginning, so to speak. So what does Abram's repentance look like? That's what we're going to explore during our short time together today. We're going to see that while last chapter, chapter 12, he treasured his possessions over God, and feared people. Now he treasures God over possessions and fears God over people. Those are the two things we'll look at today. How Abram now treasures God over possessions and Abram now fears God over people. First, Abram now treasures God over possessions. In chapter 13, Lot and Abram exhibit different attitudes toward possessions, toward wealth. Let's look at how it unfolds. They've become so rich by the beginning of chapter 13 that the land can't support both of them. It's getting too crowded. Look at verse 5. I'll pick it up there. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So you've got Abram, who's rich, Lot, who's rich, you've got Canaanites and Perizzites living in the area, which is a problem, this crowding is, for people in this time, because it wasn't like it, was, it is today. Today, if you get rich, all that happens is the number on your screen for your bank account grows. It changes numbers, right? 4,000 years ago, if you got rich, that means your flocks and herds are growing, which means you need more servants to care for your wealth, which means you need more tents for your servants. Being rich took a lot of land back then. So they got to split up. Now you'd expect Lot to defer to Abram as Abram's the older family member, the uncle, the leader. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 8. And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. It's almost unheard of to do what Abram does in those verses, to give the younger man the choice, especially because there's a clearly preferable land option, and he knows Lot's character, and so he probably has to know what Lot is going to choose. Sure enough, look at what Lot chooses, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked. 
great sinners against the Lord. What's on Lot's mind as he makes this decision? We remember last chapter there was a famine chapter 12, so it would be surprising if Lot isn't factoring that in, right? Like, wait, what if there's another famine? I better set myself up somewhere fertile enough to withstand famine. Where's my best chance to grow my portfolio, to have a secure future? Clearly, it's over here by Sodom. Now, what's he choosing when he chooses to set up shop near Sodom? He's choosing to live near people who are already legendary for their wickedness, as verse 13 suggests. But Sodom also represents a chance to grow his wealth, right? To expand it. He's, he's almost choosing to leave God's promised land of Canaan. Sodom would put him out of there. He says he goes near Sodom, pitches his tent near Sodom. So he's right in the outskirts of the promised land. In the next chapter, when he moves into Sodom, he will have officially left the land of the promise. But Sodom represents a chance to expand his wealth. Now, if we're satisfied with a surface analysis here, we could just say at this point, okay, Lot's greedy. I'm not greedy, so nothing here for me. Let's move on. Right. Or we could go a different direction and say, well, nothing wrong with the choice Lot makes here. You've got to be realistic. When it comes to your money, business is business. Lot's just engaging in good business. But Tim Keller pointed out, uh, pointed me to an all-important observation by a guy named Robert Alter. Look at how Lot perceives the land that he's choosing in the Jordan Valley. Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well-watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the garden of the Lord. Here's the observation. The garden of the Lord is a reference to Eden, where Adam and Eve lived. The last place where humanity knew who we were. We knew our purpose. We knew our lives were worth living. Ever since humanity rebelled in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord, every one of us has lived trying to figure out a fundamental question. Does my life count? Why am I here? Who am I? Is my life worth living? And the story of our lives then is that each of us chases after the answers to those fundamental questions, either by accumulating possessions, or tallying romantic partners, or amassing power. The specifics are different for each one of us. But what we're all trying to do in all of our pursuits from the time we're young is to convince ourselves that our lives have meaning, to overcome our fears that we're irrelevant or meaningless. We're trying to recapture the garden. It's not insignificant then, that when Lot looks out towards Sodom, <clears throat> he thinks it looks just like the garden of the Lord. If I could just have this, in other words, then I'd have Eden back. So what's your Jordan Valley this morning? What goal or relationship do you have your eyes on? What achievement or possession looks like the garden of the Lord to you, such that you know that if you could just grasp it, you just know the pieces would fall into place in your life. You know who you were. Whether we answer that that's job success or financial security or sexual fulfillment, whatever it is, let's remember two things. One, those things aren't ultimately what we're after. There's always a layer deeper. We only want those things because of what we believe they will finally tell us about ourselves. So, we ask ourselves, we do well to ask ourselves, what is that deep question about myself that I'm still trying to answer with my earthly pursuits? 
Secondly, let's remember that those things ultimately can't provide Eden, as Lot will find out. But let's go back to Abram for a moment. Unlike Lot, Abram somehow seems detached from the Jordan Valley and the wealth opportunity it represents. Just last chapter, the prospect of famine freaked Abram out. Now he's prepared to let Lot take the place that promises maximum potential for portfolio growth while he himself takes the less optimal land. So I'm indebted to Tim Keller again for summarizing the situation this way. Abram has three things, and he can only keep two. He has God, he has Lot, and he has his possessions. He can keep two of the three. He can keep Lot and his possessions, and they can move elsewhere together, out of the promised land, abandoning God's promise, and and be rich together. Or he can steamroll over Lot to take the best land, technically sticking with God, And keeping his possessions, but losing his relationship with his nephew, who, by the way, has seemingly gotten irritable because of his own ambition for wealth accumulation, verse 7. But Abram doesn't choose either of those paths. Instead, he chooses the third option, which is jeopardizing his own possessions in order to preserve his relationship with God and with his nephew Lot. Somehow, Abram doesn't feel the need to prove his worth anymore, like he did last chapter. Doesn't feel the need to prove his worth anymore, like Lot seemingly does. Something has changed within him to the point where he's effectively like Lot. I don't need to prove to myself that I'm not a bum. Do you remember that in the Rocky movie when he says that he's, he's fighting to prove to himself that he's not a bum? It's like he's saying to Lot, well, he can say to Lot, <clears throat> I don't need to justify my existence. If you saw the Chariots of Fire movie and, and, and uh, Abraham's, Harold Abraham says that that's why he's running because I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. I don't need to do that. Lot, I'd rather have a good relationship with you than have the greatest land. And I'm certainly going to prioritize my relationship with God over the land because what good would it do me to live in God's garden without God? So Lot, what land do you want? You take your pick. How did Abram attain that level of inner security? We'll come back to that question later, but for now, let's just note what happened at the end of chapter 12 that seemed to lead to this change that we're seeing in chapter 13. Abram has now experienced God's grace in response to his failure. And receiving that grace seems to have done something in Abraham, something supernatural. It seems to have answered some deep questions in Abram's heart in such a way that he no longer needs to chase those answers elsewhere. So look at what God says to Abram, starting in verse 14. Some have speculated that this may have taken place on a high lookout point that exists in this area still to this day. God may have spoken this to Abram from that lofty vantage where Abram could see far and wide. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Despite Abram's colossal failure, just last chapter, the ding of the bell is followed by God extending grace upon grace. 
It would have been gracious enough if God had just saved his life and that of his wife and said, forget the promise, but I just gave you your life, right? But here, God goes beyond that to reaffirm the promise that was given before Abram messed up back in chapter 12. In other words, Abram's failure does not cause the God of grace to rescind his promise. Because after all, he already knew that Abram would fail at the time he made the promise. It's his delight to show Abram grace. So that's what we see in chapter 13. God extending grace and Abram responding by treasuring God now over his possessions. Now let's finish with a quick look at chapter 14 where Abram demonstrates another important change from chapter 12, namely that he now fears God over people. He now fears God over people. Remember the fearful Abram we saw back in chapter 12, right? Pharaoh's going to kill me. I better give up my wife to save myself. Now, in chapter 14, after experiencing God's grace, Abram shows no fear. Even in the face of a coalition of four foreign kings who have just swept through the region and annihilated the five kings that were living in Abram's backyard. We don't have time to read all of it in full. Hopefully you had a chance to read it this week in preparation. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14 set the stage, and I'll just summarize. Lot isn't living near Sodom at this point. He's living in Sodom. That tells us something. And, and even though the king of Sodom has an alliance with four other kings that are named here, those five together are no match for this foreign king named Cater-Laomer and the three kings that are allied with him who sweep through the region, defeat everyone, and take Lot captive while they're at it. Let's pick up in verse 13 and see what happens. Genesis 14, 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcolon of Aner. Those, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So on a very basic level, there's a fearlessness here that Abram didn't have back in chapter 12. Sure, he's got 318 fighters with him. But remember, he's going against four allied armies who just defeated an, an alliance of five kings that were nearby. The fear that he had for his life back in chapter 12 isn't seen here. He loves his nephew and just wants to do whatever it takes to save him, even at risk to himself. But listen, for most of us, fighting against fear, the temptation to fear people, doesn't necessarily looking like, look like being brave when those people are trying to kill us. Right? That's just not an experience that most of us have. Those of you who serve in the armed forces are a notable exception. But for most of us, our fearing people evidences itself in our caring to an inordinate degree what they think or in our strong desire to look good in the eyes of others or in our desperate attempts to flex to make ourselves seem important. And maybe instead of a battlefield where we'd be faced with our fear of enemy soldiers who might hurt us by use of their weapons, we have things like our social media accounts, our own battlefield of sorts, where we're faced with fear of our followers who might hurt us by withholding their likes, right? Whether you're an avid social media user or not, 
Most of us now in 2021 have had the experience at least once of waiting for likes and comments on a post to tell us we're significant or not, to tell us whether we're relevant or not, to tell us whether we matter or not. You're like, well, I thought that post was really going to wow people, but it's generating very little attention. Why is nobody liking it? Why is nobody commenting? Am I not as attractive as I think I am? Am I not as clever as I think I am? Am I not as impressive as I think I am? That's fear of people. It's a different sort of fear of people than a soldier faces on a battlefield, but it's fear of people nonetheless. And Abram actually is tempted with this second kind of fear of people as well. Think about it. After the battle's won, Abram has done something really impressive. By defeating these four kings and saving his brother, he now has a chance to establish himself as a force to be reckoned with in the region. To assert how truly impressive he is, to take credit for the great victory he has accomplished. But look how the post-victory scene plays out. Especially pay attention to the contrast between how Abram deals with these two kings. Look at uh, verse 17 with me. After his return from the defeat of Cater-Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Do you see that? Abram has a chance to take credit if he wants to. After all, it must have taken hard work on his part to raise up 318 men born in his household who were trained soldiers. It turned out to be a really good strategy on Abram's part that he attacked at night and divided his forces, right? How many of us would want to make sure people took notice of how impressive we had been after a battle like that? Abram doesn't. He gives all the glory to God. That's what he's doing in verse 20 when he gives the king of Salem a tenth of everything. This king of Salem, super mysterious dude who shows up here in Genesis and then doesn't show up in Genesis again, serves as both a king and a priest somehow of God Most High. He comes to congratulate Abram, but attributes the victory to God. See that in verses 19 and 20? And what does Abram do? He submits himself to Melchizedek and affirms Melchizedek's words by giving him a tenth of everything. It's as if Abram's saying, yes, absolutely, you are right. It was God who delivered my enemies into my hands. But then look how differently Abram speaks to the king of Sodom, who has no interest in giving credit to God, or to Abram for that matter. Verses 21 to 24 again. If Abram had been in his old pattern of fearing people here, he may have asserted himself over the king of Sodom. He may have taken credit by taking the spoils of war, and then he's going to enlarge his power and influence in the process to protect himself, right? But Abram's not interested in tainted spoils of war at this point. He doesn't care what the king of Sodom thinks of him. He cares what God thinks of him. And he doesn't want God's glory being undermined by a wicked king. So by chapter 14, Abram's experience of God's grace has transformed him into the sort of person who fears God over people. 
And we see that in how he seems victorious over two different manifestations of fear in chapter 14. Fear of people who want to kill him on the battlefield and fear of people in whose eyes he might have wanted to seem impressive. What about us? We've all been guilty of fearing people over God, of caring too much what people think of us, of letting our value and worth rise or fall based on how impressive people find us. As we hear the ding of that bell this morning, reminding us of, how, of our sinful fear of people, where do we go with that? Remember our big idea. Our big idea today is this. Let's respond to failure by turning from our sin to rest in God's grace. I'm sure Abram does that here. He turns from sin to rest in God's grace. He now treasures God over possessions and fears God over people. But remember that this comes right on the heels of failure. In, on his part, in both of these areas. Let's respond to failure by turning from our sin to rest in God's grace. Friends, we've all blown it. If Abram's disaster back in chapter 12 feels categorically different from any sin you've ever committed, wait until you live a little more life, right? Talk to an older, some of the older folks in our congregation. They'll tell you most of us will find a way to make a mess that big ourselves. And when that bell goes ding, our tendency will be to either deny that we messed up, because then if we didn't mess up, then we don't need grace, or to wallow in self-hatred, because it doesn't feel like we're deserving of grace. I shared at the beginning that those were my two go-to responses to failure for many years, but I can speak from experience when I say that both denial and self-hatred were ultimately self-defeating strategies as they never allowed grace to come any closer than arm's length to me. I lived years and years hating myself for the last ding of the bell and dreading the next one. Friends, self-denial or denial of our sin, self-hatred, these are tools of our enemy to keep us from receiving the one thing that he knows we need, grace, grace that leads to repentance. We saw in our text today that instead of denying his sin or wallowing in self-hatred, Abram received grace. And that grace supernaturally enabled him to respond by repenting. And isn't it funny how his repenting doesn't come across in these chapters as some sort of striving self-effort to pull himself up by his bootstraps and, and, and do better next time? It doesn't, it doesn't read that way. That's because it wasn't a self-generated effort to avoid the bell. It was security in knowing that he was going to receive grace no matter how many times that bell might ring. Some of you know from experience that you can't just walk out these doors this morning and just decide to imitate Abraham. You can't just decide that you're going to treasure God over possessions this week. You can't just decide that you're going to fear God instead of people tomorrow. If that sort of change is going to take place in your life, you know, you've come to know, that the only hope for it is to be fueled by a resting in God's grace. But if you'll indulge me and give me just another two minutes, there's one final piece missing before we can confidently rest in God's grace this week. Namely, the question of how does God give grace like that? 
Like to Abram, how does he do it? And to us, how does he do it? You're telling me that this awesome and holy and terrifying God is just going to say to Abram, yeah, I mean, you rejected my promise and instead you tried to protect your own future in Egypt. Yeah, you totally exposed your wife to unthinkable harm to save your own neck. And actually, I know you're going to fail again and again after today in epic fashion, but I forgive you. All the promises that I made to you, they still stand. And that's just it. Seems too simple. Doesn't add up. It's because it is too simple. God couldn't just forgive Abram like that. He couldn't just forgive you and me for the wrongs we've done, if not for the work of Jesus Christ. The one that each of these chapters ultimately points to. So chapter 13. Remember chapter 13 we looked at today when God took Abram up to that overlook. He showed him everything and said, I'm going to give you all of this. 2,000 years after that, Jesus, the Son of God, would similarly be taken up to an overlook, and Satan would show him the kingdoms of the world, saying, Jesus, I'll give you all of this. All you have to do is just not do the whole suffering thing where you go to the cross. And our Lord Jesus, even though he had every right to take possession of what Satan was offering him, laid down that right so that Abram, And you and I could be taken up on the overlook and claim what we don't have the right to claim. Namely, a share in the inheritance of God's eternal city in his forever place of rest. Did you know that? That Jesus turned down the inheritance he deserved so that Abram and you and I could gain an inheritance that we don't deserve? That's how he purchased the grace that we rest in. In chapter 14, do you remember in chapter 14 that we looked at today? When Abram gave a tenth of everything to this mysterious Melchizedek, thereby acknowledging Melchizedek as the greater priest king? Well, 2,000 years after that, the writer to the Hebrews would reflect on this passage and note that, hey, Melchizedek actually points to Jesus. He's a forerunner of Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate priest king. The ultimate king of righteousness, that's what the name Melchizedek means. The ultimate king of peace, that's what king of Salem means. The one who came as both a king, reigning over people, and as a priest, making mediation between the people and God. It's because of that royal mediatorial work of Christ that you and I have access to that astounding grace of God that Abram availed himself of. It's only because of Christ. We deserve the bell to whisk us away to torment for our rebellion against the God who called us. Instead, Christ came to stand in our place, to hear the bell ring, even though he didn't deserve it, taking the torment to silence the bell for us so that we could instead hear these precious words, you're forgiven. With those beautiful words ringing in our ears, let's respond to our own failure now by turning from our sin to rest in God's grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are colossal failures. I I am chief among those here today. That bell seems like it dings constantly, and we know that if we could see the full picture of our sin, if we were aware of the majority of sin that we're blind to, that bell would just be ringing constantly. Yet, you knew that before you called us, and you called us anyway. You knew that 
before you extended your offer of forgiveness. And you extended it anyway. You knew that before you sent your son Jesus to go to that cross on our behalf and die for us. And yet, our Lord Jesus went anyway. We're grateful, Lord, for your grace. Help us not to stiff-arm that grace and keep it at arm's length by our denial of our sin or by our self-hatred with which we seek to protect ourselves from needing your grace. Lord, help us to just receive it as Abram did. And then, and then fueled by that grace, help us to return to the place where we pitched our tents at the first and help us to walk a different way, enabled by your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.